we have 100 trillion of these microbes. They live in our skin, in our mouth. They basically carpet the entire body, and that includes the gut. That, believe it or not, is the highest concentration of bacteria on literally the entire planet. They play a critical role in, in the processing of our food. They are deeply involved in our metabolism. So let me give you an example. If you take an obese mouse and you transplant the gut bacteria from the obese mouse into a skinny mouse, and the skinny mouse is going to become obese simply because you changed the gut bacteria. They control the vast majority of our genetic code. 1% of your genes are human. 99% are your gut microbiome. That's Dr. Will Bolsowitz, or Dr. B. And this is episode 17 of The Proof Podcast. Friends, welcome back. Great to be here with you again. Hope you're doing well. For first-time listeners, thanks for joining us. I'm Simon Hill, the host of this show, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Will Bolswitz. Will's credentials certainly speak for themselves. It's really no wonder he is a leading global voice on all things gut health, He graduated medicine at Georgetown University, has a master's of science in clinical investigation, has published several scientific papers, and is a board-certified practicing gastroenterologist. Being Will's first time on the show, I thought it would be a good idea to approach this conversation with a very much gut health 101 mindset, a primer, so to speak. By getting the basics first, we can lay the foundations for future episodes where we continue diving deeper and deeper together. In this conversation, we speak about what the buzzword microbiome is, what dysbiosis means, parts of our lifestyle that can lead to an unhealthy microbiome and poor gut health, what pre and probiotics are, how to build a healthy gut, and much more. So if you are interested in gut health and are looking for an evidence-based conversation made simple, I think you'll really enjoy this one. With that said, let's get into it. This is me and Dr. Will Bolsowitz, aka Dr. B. Catch you on the other side for a short debrief. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB 
to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. B, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. It's a pleasure, man. It's awesome to get on with you. It's kind of cool to be talking to the Australian James Bond. <laughs> uh, it's crazy, man. How is Morocco? Yeah, no, uh, Morocco is beautiful. I've, I've, I've only been here. We came in late last night, so I've had half the day today and going to spend the, the rest of this afternoon sort of exploring the, the souk area downtown and really looking forward to that. But had some had some delicious food today. So yeah, loving it so far. Sounds amazing. Now, before we 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 dive in and, and start chatting all things gut health related, I I need to ensure that I'm able to pronounce your full name correctly. You'll notice I went with Doctor B, which was the the cop out introduction. But your 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 full name is Doctor Will Bolsowitz. Well, that was actually perfect, which is incredible because we haven't gone, we we didn't do any sort of practice before we got on the air here. And <laughs> to be honest with you, I actually don't consider Dr. B to be a cop-out. I actually fully endorse that name. I love that name. In a way, it's almost like I'm building a brand with that name. Okay, and all of my patients call me Dr. B. So please feel free to, to definitely call me that. Okay, fantastic. Well, take note of that. Anyone listening that wants to reach out to Dr. B afterwards, um, and, and no doubt through this conversation, we will we'll let you know exactly how you can get in contact with him. So, Dr. B, before we, we get into the, the nitty-gritty and, and the science and what we should be doing to, to look after our digestive system and, and, and really just in layman's terms, giving everyone a real understanding as to what microbiome is and these these buzzwords, what they actually mean, and practically what we can do every day to absorb foods better and, and feel less bloated and things like that. I am super interested in getting a better understanding as to where this all started for you and what inspired you 
to to study and get into this area in the first place? Well, to be honest with you, this is not what I had planned. And I'm the guy who has like a 10 year and a 20 year plan. And I always think that that's where things are going to go. And it's just funny how life can take you on a meandering path. And next thing you know, you end up in a place that you really didn't expect, but that you're super excited about and passionate about. So for me, you know, I decided when I was like 16 or 17 years old that I wanted to become a doctor. And at that time, I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. So I went in the United States, the way that it works is you go to four years at the university and then you'll spend an additional four years in medical school. And so I did that. I was I went through medical school. It was during that period of time that I became interested in gastroenterology. And really the reason that I was interested, this was about 15 years ago. The reason why I was interested in gastroenterology had absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today, because truthfully, the science wasn't there yet. We didn't know any of these things. But my interest was in having a field that would allow me to use my mind to understand my patients, understand the complexity of disease, you know, be able to figure out using my mind like a scalpel, like a tool try to peel away complex problems and basically come to some sort of solution that can help my patient. But then on the flip side, like I wanted to be able to use my hands. And so if you're a surgeon, you spend all day in the operating room, but you never really get to step into the clinic and use your mind as much. You're really designed to to use your hands. In gastroenterology, I get to do procedures. I, I do colonoscopy, upper endoscopy. There's many other procedures that I do. It may seem unappealing to other people to do those things, but to be honest with you, I actually love that part of my job. I get to, on a daily basis, do things that prevent colon cancer from ever developing. And so it's very satisfying when you take a patient and you perform a procedure and you know that the outcome is that you're protecting them from cancer. So I, you know, I went down this pathway to become a gastroenterologist and I was actually planning to be a researcher, which is why. I have this background where I was writing papers. I wrote over 20 papers that went into some of the top GI journals in the United States. I was on a grant from the United States National Institute of Health and really was building up the credentials to to be an academic and to write papers and define diseases. But the problem was that I missed my patients. I missed being in the clinic. It sort of pulled me too far away from that relationship that I have with my patients. And so I felt compelled to get back to that, which is what I chose to go into medicine for in the first place. And so I ended up going into practice, into clinical practice, so that I could be taking care of patients. But as I did that, you know, I have all these tools that, uh, you know, I developed for research purposes. And now all of a sudden, I find myself applying them, looking at the research studies that are coming out, dealing with what we're going to talk about today which is the gut, the gut microbiome, these bacteria, this community of bacteria and viruses and other things that live inside of us and that play a critical role in our health. And this is stuff that has been emerging in, in terms of science for only about 10 years. Because what happened is prior to 10 years ago, we didn't have the laboratory tools necessary to understand these communities of bacteria. And so then about 2006, that's when there was a breakthrough and we developed a a tool to be able to test and identify these trillions of bacteria 
And since then, there has been an explosion of study where there's like 30 new papers that come out on a daily basis talking about this stuff, hard for most doctors to keep up with. So, so before that, before 2006 and, and our, our increased understanding of these living organisms in the gut, what was, what was the understanding of microbiome in the stomach? I mean, it was, to be honest with you, I would describe it from the medical side as being sort of dismissive. You know, we knew that there were bacteria that lived inside of us. We didn't really view them as playing a critical role in our health. You know, it was like, hey, they're just along for the ride. You know, I mean, you can imagine growing up, you know, having poop jokes and stuff like that. And now we're in a place where poop is medicine. Like what? (laughs) What happened? And so it's, we've sort of come full circle where this part of the body that we didn't really pay much respect to has, I think, in my opinion, redefined our understanding of health and disease. And to me is the critical piece that we need to promote health throughout our entire body, not just in the intestines. You know, after 2006, when these new equipment became available and, and new research has, has been coming out since then. Is this what then really excited you to become, like to set up your clinic or was your clinic already set up or is that what inspired you to set up a clinic dedicated to this area of health so that you can really make changes to patients' lives by you know treating them from the gut? I was trained to be a stomach intestine doctor the training in the United States for complicated reasons is very focused on the use of medications developed by the pharmaceutical industry. And there is next to no emphasis on the role that nutrition plays. It's shocking to me that the vast majority of doctors in my field do not talk to their patients about how to eat in order to promote health. And so so from my perspective, to answer your question, this is not something where I woke up one day and said, hey, I'm going to do this. And this is not something where I took a course or read a book to learn how to do this. This is something where I started to open my eyes to the fact that nutrition is relevant. And as I started to do that, as I started to embrace the importance of food being a critical part of our health, as I looked at the landscape, I saw this connection between the food that we eat and the impact that it has on our bacteria and our gut. As I started to explore this connection, I, it, my eyes opened up to this world where the gut is the central role in our health. And since that point, which was probably around 2013, it has become sort of the backbone of the way that I take care of my patients. But that's not the way that I was trained to do it. And so what I've had to do is use these tools that I have, these research tools, where I can read a paper and I can understand it because I was taught how to write those papers in the first place or how to do those studies in the first place. I can look at the science and I just make those choices, those decisions for myself of, okay, here's where the science is and this is what makes sense. And at the end of the day, someone needs to step forward and take a leadership position in terms of teaching people about the science that's already out there. And so if it's not part of the routine doctor's community, which it is not in the United States, 
I feel that it should be. And so I'm trying to get the word out and spread that. As in, you, you feel like it should be part of the, the curriculum? Oh, absolutely. I think it should be part of medical school. There's no question about that. It should be part of medical school. It should be, it should be emphasized in a major way. And doctors should be working this into their practice. And you know, the problem is, I mean, this is, this is sort of complicated stuff. You have to understand that what's asked of us as individuals, us doctors is a lot. You know, I basically was working 80 hours a week from the time that I was 18 years old till the time I was 34 to complete my training for 16 years. That's what I was doing. And just basically working two jobs. And the amount of information that's out there is overwhelming. And so when you go through your training, you are taught to do things a certain way. And most doctors don't have the time Mm. to sit down and look at everything else that's out there that's different than what they were actually trained to do. And so it's not given a lot of consideration. That's the problem. So it's like, there's so much to learn. It's like, how are you going to fit it into the course? What are you going to remove? It's a, it's a very interesting topic. Do you think that the curriculum will change? Have you, have you heard about changes? Do you, do you see nutrition playing a larger part in the sort of undergraduate medical degrees in the United States? I think it's going to happen. I think it's just a question of when. And, there, and historically, um, changes to medical thinking are incredibly slow. They've done estimates where they say that when a paper comes out, it could take 15 or 16 years for people to actually start to use it in their clinic, which is crazy. I mean, that, that makes no sense. If it comes out, we should be using it. But you know, the problem is the dissemination of information and how to get this to people. There are schools that are starting to incorporate things that are more along these lines. I think the key, though, is this needs to be an emphasis. This is not a side project that you do just like on the side, this needs to be the core of what we are teaching people. Yes, it's the whole prevention versus treatment sort of discussion. Right. And that's the problem that we have in the United States is, and you know, to be honest with you, I would imagine it's actually very similar to Australia. I know that the average diet in the United States is very comparable to the way that people eat in Australia, which is that 65% of our calories in the US come from processed food, which we don't even know what's in them. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much exactly. I mean, even when you look at the top killers, the chronic disease killers, they're pretty much identical between you know the USA and Australia. And USA and Australia are the top two countries. And I think I'm pretty sure Britain is number three. These are the top countries in terms of meat consumption on the planet. <laughs> and, and yet somehow there are diets that are popular right now that people advocate that we double down on that, that you know, it's not enough that you're eating way more meat than you are actual fruits and vegetables. We need more meat. And that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so uh, b- before we jump into learning um, a little bit more about the specific organisms that do live in, in our gut, and, a, and I guess an overview of the gut microbiome, during this sort of 2013 journey to now that you've gone on and how it's, it seems to have sort of changed the way that you think, and, that, and that's based on the science that you've seen and, and interpreted. Have you also had a personal shift in the way that you consume food? No question. I was known among my friends in college at university for eating horribly. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was normal for me to have a bacon, egg, and cheese for breakfast and a cold-cut Italian 
submarine sandwich for lunch and a hot dog or a burger for dinner. That was normal. And there was no focus. And this, and I'm not talking about when I'm in high school. I'm talking about I am a medical doctor. I have finished medical school. You know, I am taking care of patients. And yet that is the way that I eat. It just goes to show you the lack of awareness around this topic. And, you know, where that transition happened for me, it's again, not that there was like one day where I woke up and had an epiphany, but it happened in part because of the science that I was seeing in part because I met my wife and she ate different than, different than I did. And I never, it was sort of in a way, ignorance on my part. I had never been exposed to eating a clean diet. And also we had our daughter in 2014. And so when you have a child, the moment that your child is born, your perspective on the world changes like literally in that second. And so, and so for me, you'll see someday. And so (laughs) for me, you know, you want to raise your child. Like it's amazing how powerful that motivation is where I, I meet a lot of people actually who aren't necessarily motivated to change their own life, but they are motivated to change whatever is necessary to provide a better life for their children. And so for me, I had that same motivation that what, what can we eat at home that's going to be good for our kids? And so that's where all of this was moving in the same direction at the same time. And I made these changes and it was never a dramatic one day shift. Like, I don't know for you, for you, was it a one day shift? Where no, you- it was, um, I mean, I, I, my transition was over six to 12 months. Yeah. And that's me too. Yeah. That's me too. And so, and I, honestly, I think that's the right way to do it because your body needs a chance to adapt to the changes that you're making. Yeah, sure. Um, so that's what happened to me. And okay. So, so that was, um, you know, sort of the timeline of you changing and, and what foods do you focus on now in your, in your own diet? I know we may be skipping ahead because we're going to talk about the later on the foods that you'd recommend, but just, just in short, what are the main focus foods of your family? It's actually incredibly simple. Like we tend to make diet very complicated. Um, there are people who want to tell you that they have figured out the secret to diet. There's no secret. It's actually quite simple. You need to eat more plants, fresh fruits and vegetables, diversity of plants, as many different types, you know, being willing to go to the grocery and explore something that maybe you haven't picked up before. Grab it, throw it in your basket, take it home, and then find a recipe. And so that's sort of the way that we eat at home is we are trying to maximize a plant-based diet and looking at the diversity of the plants. And yes, there are some superstars in there. There are some that I have more love for than the rest. You know, like I love, I love beans. I love broccoli sprouts. In general, it's just a love for all plants, to be honest with you. Okay, great. And gut microbiome. It's a, it's a key word. We see it talked about from media. What does gut, what does gut microbiome mean to, in, in layman's terms? So the gut microbiome is this community of living organisms that have been with us since the start of human evolution. And this includes bacteria, yeast or fungus, viruses, and then something very interesting that we know almost nothing about, which is called archaea. Archaea are single cellular organisms that are different than the bacteria and the fungi. And they have been around for 4 billion years. 
you'll find them all over our planet. You'll find them inside of a volcano. Wow. Right? That's how resilient yeah. these things are. And they live inside of us. And we know very little about actually what they're doing right now. But there is this community of these four general types of organisms, bacteria, fungi, archaea, and viruses that live inside of us in harmony, in balance. And they're there for a purpose. And when you hear about how big, how vast this is, it's a little bit overwhelming to hear about. Like I would compare it to when I read history books and read about wars like World War II, and you hear about how a couple hundred thousand people died. Like I can't even fathom that. I can't even understand how a couple hundred thousand people die in a battle. And so on the same level, we have a hundred trillion of these microbes, a hundred trillion. So that's like you take all of the stars in the Milky Way, every single one of them, and you multiply that by 1,000. That's how many of these organisms. Yeah. And so they live in our skin. They are in our mouth. In, In women, they're inside the vagina. And so they basically carpet the entire body. And that includes the gut. And if you were to look at the colon, your large intestine, that, believe it or not, is the highest concentration of bacteria on literally the entire planet. I mean, you could take the gnarliest, most disgusting place that you can possibly imagine, and you still have a higher concentration of bacteria inside of you, (laughs) inside your colon. It's crazy. It's really hard to fathom. (laughs) And there, and, you know, going back to our earlier conversation, these are not passive bystanders here. They serve a purpose. They serve a critical purpose. And so they are actually incredibly involved, obviously, in the processing of our food. Sure, people that are listening at home right now have noticed that there's food sensitivities like blowing up all over the place. People saying, I'm sensitive to this. I'm sensitive to that. I mean, when I was a kid, I don't remember people having that many of an issue with food sensitivities. Do you? I mean, no, 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 not at all. Like I was talking about this. I don't, I don't remember any kids in my elementary or primary school years or even high school years been having food sensitivities. Yeah. So yeah, they play a critical role in, in the processing of our food. They are deeply involved in our metabolism. So let me give you an example. You can take a, uh, this, these are these studies, like it, it, it's just crazy. This is hard to actually believe that this is true, but let me just tell you up front, they have reproduced this study a bazillion times. Like anyone who goes into a lab could do this. It's not hard to do. If you take an obese mouse and you transplant the gut bacteria from the obese mouse into a skinny mouse, that skinny mouse is you're not changing the diet. Like you're giving that skinny mouse the exact same food, the exact same calories. And the skinny mouse is going to become obese (laughs) simply because you changed the gut bacteria. So our gut bacteria, I mean, we all know people who they can eat whatever they want and they're still skinny. And we know people who they really struggle. You know, maybe we don't give them enough credit for how hard they struggle to try to control what they eat but they can't lose weight. 1% of your genes are human. 99% are your gut microbiome. (laughs) If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, 
the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So about 15 years ago, a number of researchers around the world, for the first time, cracked the human genetic code. They were able to finally analyze our DNA in its entirety. And they really thought that once we do this, we're going to have it all figured out. This is, this is it. This is the end of the road. And it, the results have been incredibly disappointing. And the reason why is because you are not born with diseases that you are going to develop no matter what. You are not predestined to develop the vast majority of the diseases that you have or, or that, that you could develop, but you have a predisposition. You have a genetic code that you carry, and these gut bacteria have the ability to influence the expression of your genetic code. And this is the reason why the way that you live, the way that you eat, can make a huge difference in whether or not you develop heart disease or cancer or stroke or all of these different things. So let me give you an example. Let me talk about celiac disease for a moment because it's really cool. 
So for the people listening at home, I'm sure you have heard of a gluten-free diet, the people listening at home. And so gluten is found in wheat, barley, and rye, those three grains. And celiac disease are, is a condition where people have an immune response to gluten. If they consume gluten, their immune system actually goes on the attack and starts attacking the intestine and tears it up. And it's a very dangerous thing because if you have celiac disease, you can develop cancer of the small intestine. And that is, unfortunately, if you develop that, it's, there's almost nothing that we can do. So those people need to go gluten-free on their diet. And celiac disease has been exploding. If you look at the incidence in Western countries like the United States, like Australia, it has blown up in the last 50 years. We are seeing way more than we used to see. So, so why is the immune system attacking the, the, the gluten in these particular people? So, and that's, that's, that's the intuitive question that the researchers have been asking. And it's not until recently that we discovered the answer to, the, to that question. And we just discovered this in the last like five, six years. There is a researcher at McMaster in Toronto, in Toronto, Canada, who basically discovered that there are three criteria that you need to meet in order to develop celiac disease. You need all three. If you don't have all three, it's not going to happen. So number one, you need exposure to gluten. Every single person growing up in my country and yours has been exposed to gluten. Sure. There's no one. There's no one who has not. Number two, you need to have the genetics. Well, in the United States, and I would I would bet it's probably exactly the same in your country. In the United States, one out of three people carry the gene for celiac disease. So one out of three people carry the gene, but only one percent actually develop the disease. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is. Number three, changes in gut bacteria. When you change the gut bacteria to something that is unhealthy, and we have a word for that, which is dysbiosis. When people develop a loss of balance of the healthy bacteria and they have dysbiosis, it allows the genetic code to get flipped on. So this gene gets flipped on and then they manifest celiac disease where now the immune system turns on this, you know, basically gluten and goes on the attack. Have they identified any, any common commonalities between the, the people that do develop this gluten intolerance and what was potentially responsible for the changes in gut bacteria? If they, is, it, is it something they can pinpoint or is it a whole bunch of things? I think that that's an incredibly difficult to answer because as it currently stands, our understanding, you know, this world inside of us of gut bacteria is incredibly complex. And every single one of us has a gut bacteria that like combination that is essentially a fingerprint. It's unique. Like you have your own pattern of bacteria, which is completely different than any single person on the entire planet. It's probably closest to your mom. But that being said, it's completely unique to you. And so our ability to understand this world where there may be anywhere from 300 to 1,000 different species of bacteria inside of, the, inside of the body and how they interact with each other, it's very hard for us to do that. And so they haven't identified like, you know, someday I think there's going to be a test. You can look at someone's microbiome, look at the pattern and tell them whether or not they're predisposed to celiac disease or any other condition. 
Someday we're going to be able to do that, but we're not at a point where we can say it's exactly this, this, and this. And so that's where we need further research to really help us elucidate that. So yeah, so, so celiac disease is an example of something where you may carry the gene, one out of three people do in the US, only 1% manifest disease, but that, that number is skyrocketing as we speak because there is an increased incidence of this dysbiosis or changes in gut bacteria. So, and we can talk more a little bit later if you want about what are the things that cause dysbiosis. But before I, before we jump to that, I just wanted to close out a couple of the things that the gut microbiota are related to. And, and that is that the immune system lives in the gut. 70% of your immune system, the defense against disease is in your gut. And that is where the immune system goes to learn what is good and what is bad. And it is separated from your gut microbiota, these bacteria, is only separated from your immune system by a single layer of cells, smaller than a single follicle of hair from your head. And so they are that close together. It's like having a little rickety fence in between two parties. They're communicating with each other. They're talking to each other and they directly influence each other. And when you mess up the gut, when you damage these bacteria, you are damaging the immune system because they go hand in hand. And this is the reason why changes in gut bacteria, dysbiosis, have also been associated with so many different autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, multiple sclerosis, things that aren't even involved in the gut, like multiple sclerosis or rheumatoid arthritis, are connected back to these gut bacteria because that's where your immune system lives. And I'm sure that you've noticed that the immune, like there are a ton of autoimmune diseases exploding right now, not just celiac. You know, there are conditions that I treat that when you and I were kids, didn't even exist. And I'll see them twice in the same day. Something called eosinophilic esophagitis did not even exist 20 years ago. And now I'll see it two times in the same day. It's crazy. So the immune system is deeply intertwined with your gut. And then the last thing that I wanted to point out, there's other stuff too that's less crazy, but you know, I like to focus on the wild stuff. And the last thing is your gut is really related to your mood. There's a reason why people that have digestive problems oftentimes also have anxiety and depression. It's not that anxiety and depression are causing their gut issue. It's very interesting. Irritable bowel syndrome is a huge problem in the United States. Like tons of people have this. And the GI doctor community that I'm a part of, we always thought that the reason why these patients had anxiety and GI problems at the same time is we thought, oh my gosh, these, pe these people are anxious, they're neurotic. And they're so neurotic that they make themselves sick and develop diarrhea and abdominal pain and all that. And actually, we were completely wrong. And this is where the science has shown us the truth, which is that 95% of serotonin, which is the happy hormone, is produced in the gut. 95%. When I treat people for depression, I treat people for depression with something called a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. like. Selexa, Zoloft, Paxil, and the names may be different in Australia, but you would think that by, you know, because we raise serotonin levels when we use those medicines, you would think that 
all the serotonin must be in the brain because I'm treating depression with this serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Only 5% is in the brain. 95% is produced in the gut. And the reason why that we've discovered is that serotonin sets the drum for motility in your gut. And so, you know, when serotonin is working properly, you have a good pace. But when things get thrown out of whack, you have too much serotonin, you get diarrhea. You have too little serotonin, you get constipated. And so because serotonin regulates both mood and GI motility, we have discovered that the root cause of irritable bowel syndrome is these changes in gut bacteria that affect the release of serotonin, which affects your gut and also your mood. It's crazy how there's just that, that strong link between your gut and your mind. Is there, is there any other examples of diseases which are associated with similar sort of changes in our gut? The list is a laundry list. And so, you know, just starting off with the GI conditions, we already mentioned IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, celiac disease. But, you know, there's some that are interesting. We have discovered that people who drink too much and develop cirrhosis, it's because there's changes in gut bacteria. Fatty liver which is associated with type 2 diabetes, which is becoming the number one, it's soon to become the number one cause of cirrhosis in the United States. Fatty liver is associated with changes in gut bacteria. The liver is not connected. I mean, the liver is not really connected to the gut. It's not part of the tube, if you know what I mean. It's Mm. connected, but it's not part of the tube. Yet the gut bacteria down in the colon affect the manifestation of disease in the liver. And then there's all of these conditions outside of the gut that you would never think. But if you look at what's happening in modern society, in my country and in yours, you look at the diseases that are emerging and you think about them in the context of what's going on inside of us, inside of our gut, you start to realize that most modern diseases are related back to this. Coronary artery disease has been associated with changes in gut bacteria. Most types of cancers have been associated with changes in gut bacteria. Things that you would not expect, like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, autism, ADD, uh, attention deficit disorder, all of these conditions, I mean, what, how is that related to the gut? It is. Changes in gut bacteria through all of these different pathways where the gut is communicating to the rest of the body that is the root cause of many of these conditions. I mean, some of those conditions that, I mean, when you add up all of those, it's some of the, the largest killers in America and Australia, which is just stressing the importance of how can we maintain healthy gut bacteria. And I think perhaps to explain that and you know how we can prevent dysbiosis, perhaps if you could go through how how the gut is developing, I guess, from, from when we are born to teenagers to being an adult and what healthy development would look like? Sure. Happy to. So, you know, I think that the way that you start this conversation is to say that, you know, there are diets like I'm sure the paleo diet is very popular in your country and it's very popular here in the United States. And they focus on evolutionary biology, like the way that we evolved to be, and they try to use that concept to 
builds their diet. And, and I'll just say like, if there are people that are listening who are paleo, I have respect for people who are motivated to take their health into their hands by changing their diet. And that there are a lot of things that are great about that, but there's also a lot of misguidings in there. And so the key here is that we evolved to have a relationship with these bacteria. And that evolution occurred over millions of years. You think about human history, like modern human history. So the, for example, you're in Africa right now and the pyramids were 3000 BC. So like 5,000 years ago. So modern human history only is the last 10,000 years. And prior to that, we have literally millions of years of evolution where we were hunters and gatherers. We were foragers. We would walk around. We didn't have any organized civilization. We would pick up food. And frankly, that was a time of famine. Like we weren't having three square meals a day. You lived to survive and you just needed food to help to get you there so that you could procreate and have children and human history would continue to live on. That's the way that it was. And so during this time, we developed this relationship with these bacteria that are inside of us, our microbiota, because we helped each other. And so they basically reside inside of us. And we, when we eat food, we are providing that energy source to them. So whatever we choose to eat, is the food that they are going to live off of. In turn, they provide a better life for us, a higher likelihood of survival so that we can reach that point you know, in, in sort of evolutionary history where we can procreate and have children. So this relationship is critical. And part of that evolution is the relationship that we develop during the birthing process. And some of the stuff like with all the things that you and I've already talked about that are mind blowing, this stuff to me is potentially on a whole new level where basically during the third trimester of pregnancy, mom's gut bacteria start to change. The body needs to change. Mom needs to actually carry more weight on her hips and her butt because she's carrying the baby in the front. And so what's interesting is that she, mom, will develop bacteria in the gut that are designed to harvest energy, similar to someone who has type 2 diabetes. It's very interesting. Wow. And meanwhile, mom, right at the last minute, 35 or 36 weeks of pregnancy, mom's vaginal flora, the bacteria inside of the vagina, actually start to change to resemble mom's gut bacteria. That way, when mom gives birth to the child, the child passes through the birth canal and for the first time is exposed to these bacteria. And it's mom's gift to that child where basically mom is providing the first transplant of healthy bacteria to this child. When a child is born, they have almost a sterile intestine like not quite, but almost a sterile intestine. And then they get exposed to this. And this is the reason why a traditional birth is very important. Now, that's not to say that there aren't scenarios where C-section are necessary. Like my wife, we have two kids and both of them were born by C-section and we didn't have a choice. We had to. But this is an important part of evolutionary history that a child is given the opportunity to pass through the birth canal and receive those bacteria. 
And if you look, the child will go from day zero when they're born, where they're almost sterile, to by the time they are two to three years old, they have a fully formed gut microbiome. So they will have the same strength, diversity, number of different species by the time they reach three years old as their parents would. And does that, does that differ, I guess, if they're born uh, via a cesarean or, or is it the same? The, the studies that we're doing on this are giving us mixed results and are a little bit difficult to fully fully gather what the real story is. But here's what we know. During this period of, devel- of gut development, the first three years, two to three years, if you change natural, the natural process of developing that gut in a way, it leads to downstream consequences. So if you have a C-section, if your child is exposed to antibiotics, or if your child is bottle-fed instead of breastfed, the risk of developing obesity, autoimmune disease, allergic conditions like asthma, all of those things go up dramatically. And you think back to the ties to the gut of obesity, which we already talked about, the ties to the gut of allergic conditions mean that the immune system is not working properly. It all comes back to this is, a, this is the critical period of time for gut development, and we need to make sure that we're doing everything we can to nurture it. So, and speaking to um, breastfeeding, that's one of the things that we can control. And I think that there has been inadequate emphasis on this in, in, in sort of modern medicine. I can tell you that in the United States, most people are told to breastfeed for six months and then it's okay to stop. Breast milk is the perfect food. We evolved over those millions of years to create this food. And within it is something that's I find to be super fascinating called human milk oligosaccharides, HMOs. Mm-hmm. And these things serve zero nutritional purpose for your child. Zero. They don't do anything from a caloric perspective. But what they do is they feed the bacteria in the gut. So mom's breast milk has food specifically for gut bacteria. Now, if that doesn't speak to the importance of this relationship from an evolutionary perspective, I don't know what else will. Mom, mom evolved to provide food for gut bacteria in her breast milk. And, so the, and these are the reasons why it's important, if you can, to have a traditional vaginal delivery to breastfeed your child for as long as you possibly can. And you, if, if you can, you try to avoid antibiotics. You really got to be careful about that. I mean, there'll be a lot of mothers-to-be or mothers listening who have researched what happens if they don't have enough breast milk and, you know, if they use an infant formula and, and the infant formula companies commonly market that they have included or enriched with pre- prebiotics. So um, how do they compare to this, the, the actual, I guess, prebiotic that the mother is actually making herself? I think the bottom line is anytime that we try to recreate mother nature, we're going to do a pretty mediocre job. You know what I mean? And so what I would say is this, if I, I do believe that those formula solutions, which are organic and ideally as close to dairy-free as possible and contain uh, the prebiotics within them, 
that is the right choice. There is no question. And those moms that are listening right now, that is the right choice. And you're doing the best that you can for, for your child. But on the flip side, so far, we have identified over 100 different types of these HMOs within breast milk. So we're not talking about one thing. We're talking about over 100 different types, and all of them are going down there to basically feed and nourish the bacteria in the gut. You just mentioned then to go as dairy-free as possible. And I know that, I mean, in Australia, from a dairy-free perspective, there's not a whole lot of options. And I'm commonly asked, you know, what formula would you recommend if it's dairy-free? And there's, there isn't a lot of options. And the options that are on the market seem to be much higher in sugar, uh, refined sugars, which I believe is is because they don't taste as good, the non-dairy formula. What, what do you recommend? Like if, if there is a mother listening and, you know, their preference is to get to not give dairy, but if they go away from the dairy formula, it's going to be a high sugar option. Does the high sugar, refined sugars, does that play a role in the development of the bacteria, gut bacteria as well? That is a great question. And honestly, if you are choosing the lesser of you know, what I would describe as the lesser of two evils, I think that you want to try to avoid the high processed sugar. If you're forced to, I think you want to try to avoid the high processed sugar. So, you know, I I don't know that there's a perfect formula. I can tell you that I don't remember the name of it offhand because my children are old enough that we're, that we're not using it anymore. But there was a formula that my wife got basically from Germany that she used when we were breastfeeding our, when, and my wife was breastfeeding our children you know, for example, my I have my son is 21 months old and he's not literally like nursing on the breast anymore. But my wife will provide she pumps and provides breast milk that is mixed. We'll mix it with almond milk. Okay. So just so that he's still getting some breast milk. Just to summarize that, organic is the best, low processed sugars and as little dairy as possible, but obviously do the best with whatever is available in your area. Totally. Perfectly, perfectly summarized. So, yeah. And so getting back to, you know, sort of the conversation of how does this happen? So that's the critical time, those first three years, that is the, that is going to really have an effect on the rest of your life. And from that point forward, you are up to full speed. You are flying with your adult size gut microbiome, but there's things that can happen that can cause damage to that gut. And on the flip side, there are things that can be done to enrich the gut and make it stronger. And what we tend to look at, and this may end up proving to be an oversimplification in the future, but what we look at is the diversity of the species that you carry. So I think about it like if I am on a deserted island and I can only have 15 people with me, I want 15 people who have completely different skill sets. You know, I want someone who can build a fire, someone who can build a fort, someone who can catch a fish, whatever it takes. You see what I'm saying? Like I want someone, I want different people who can do these different things, these different tasks. And so um, the same is true in the gut. And what we've seen is very clearly that when you lose diversity, that's when disease tends to manifest. And if you look at the gut microbiome in people in modern affluent countries like our countries, the United States and Australia, most of us are between 300 and 1,000 species of bacteria. 
and compare that to there are there are um, tribal people who live in Tanzania and they've studied the gut bacteria of these tribal people. And what they found is that they have 15 or 1600 different species of bacteria. Wow. So already in modern society, we are at a loss of five or 600 species of bacteria that we evolved to have. And if you keep chipping away with at that, you run the risk that at some point it's not enough to be able to get the job done that you need done. And that's when disease tends to sort of show up. And so we want to try to protect that diversity of species. And what are the things that can cause damage? Well, if I were to jump straight to the number one thing that I worry about, it's antibiotics. You know, let me say this first, like before I start bashing on these things, probably the biggest breakthrough in medical history was the discovery of penicillin. Instantly, this was, this was in the 1940s around World War II. Instantly, we added 15 years to our life expectancy. And I don't know that we'll ever see a jump like that ever again. And so antibiotics, when needed, are completely appropriate. And they're a good thing. And they can be life-saving. But the problem is that anytime you have something that's that good, you start to over-rely on it and you're just doing it, you're doing it way too much and you're using it when you don't need it. And here's what happens when you use antibiotics. I'll give you an example. Cipro is an antibiotic that I would describe as like a middle of the road, not the strongest, not the weakest. You take five days of Cipro, which is less than what is typically prescribed. Usually it's like seven to 14 days. Mm -hmm. Five days of Cipro wipes out 35% of the bacteria in your gut knocks them out. Now, the 65% that are left are the ones that are Cipro resistant and they start to dominate. And our studies show us that, you know, in terms of restoring a balance in the gut, it could take that five days of antibiotics could continue to resonate for one or two years with damage to the gut. One or two years after taking five days. So you've lost that diversity just straight straight after taking that course of antibiotics you may not you may not regain that diversity um you may you may get it back if you're lucky but you know there's likely to be a loss to some degree and what that loss is we don't really know it depends on the individual person but you know if you lose five species that's not a good thing if you don't get them back and they're gone forever that's not a good thing just to sort of paint the picture for someone who's listening who potentially is a little bit um, confused by the the term antibiotic and the fact that you're saying that it's it's knocking out this good bacteria is is it the fact that you go in to see your doctor you you are sick and they diagnose you with some sort of bacterial infection or whatnot and they prescribe the medication but the medication is not selective enough just to target the bad bacteria yeah, you nailed it. You nailed it right there. So, you know, basically you're dropping napalm. You're <laughs> dropping napalm on the gut and you don't have the surgical precision. This is not where you are picking out the bad guy and using a laser. You know, this this is not that precise. You are basically wiping out everything. And then the hope is that you're going to recover. And there there's this bacteria that we have a big time problem with in the United States called Clostridium difficile. Do you guys, have you had a lot of writing in the newspapers in Australia about this or? I, I, haven't, I haven't, no, I haven't, I haven't seen it at all. Okay. 
So this has become increasingly, uh, there's an increasing awareness in the United States about this because the New York Times wrote a major article about it a couple of years ago. So this bacteria, Clostridium difficile, it makes for a very interesting case study of the way that these communities of bacteria function. If you go back to when I was in medical school 15 years ago, very rarely would we see Clostridium difficile, which by the way, what this bacteria does is it causes inflammation of the colon, which we call colitis, inflammation of the colon, diarrhea, blood in the stool, abdominal pain. And if it's allowed to progress and become severe, it, it can become so severe that someone needs to have their colon removed. Like I have had patients who I've sent to surgery because there's no turning back. You're not going to be able to fix this bacteria in time. You need to remove the colon. That's the only way to keep them alive. And so it's, it's a serious threat. And when I was in medical school 15 years ago, we only saw this bacteria. We call it C. diff. We only saw C. diff in elderly women in the hospital who were receiving antibiotics, specifically clindamycin. Clindamycin was the one that seems to create the biggest issue. And so that was like 2002, three, four. Fast forward just five years, and I am seeing young patients who are like, you know, younger than you are, younger than me showing up in my clinic. They've never been in the hospital. They've never been on antibiotics and they have C. diff infection. <laughs> and so what we would do is we would treat it with antibiotics. So you have this bug and you go after it with antibiotics. And what we saw is that over the course of just a few years, our antibiotics got weaker and weaker and weaker to the point that we had patients who would be on antibiotics almost continuously. If, if you removed the antibiotic, it was coming back. And so we became desperate. And this led to something that I would describe as a medical breakthrough, but your listeners are probably going to be like, oh my gosh, like that's disgusting. What is he talking about? So, and this breakthrough is stool transplant, stool transplant. So the truth of what happens with the C. diff and why this has become what it is, is that there is a harmony in the gut and the good guys outnumber the bad guys and they suppress them. The good guys will actually like, you will have C. diff living inside of you, but it can't cause trouble because it's being suppressed by the good guys. But if you wipe out the good guys with antibiotics, which is what was happening with this clindamycin, but also this is what happens when people develop dysbiosis. If you wipe out the good guys, they're not able to suppress the bad guy anymore. And then the bad guy has a free for all and he creates all kinds of trouble. And so you give antibiotics to try to treat the bad guy and you knock him, you knock him down. But guess what? You're wiping out the bad, you're wiping out the good guys too. And so the minute you take away the antibiotic, your hope is that the good guys will outnumber the bad guy so that you can get back to that place where you're suppressing it. But that's not necessarily what happens. And so the reason why fecal transplant became necessary is we needed something that would restore healthy bacteria to the gut in a major way, not like a little dinky probiotic. We needed something profound. And when you do a stool transplant, you're basically taking someone's poop and transferring it, but you're transferring gut bacteria. And so when you did this, 
we found that more than 90% of the time, and I will tell you anecdotally, like this is the truth. More than 90% of the time within one or two days, the patient is totally fine. And is that, is it, this might be a stupid question, but if, if I have say a thousand species of uh, bacteria in my stomach, in my stool, is there close to a thousand species living like in there? That's actually a really good question. And the answer is, so first of all, another sort of mind crippling fact, 60% of the weight of your stool is bacteria. So most of your stool is actually these bacteria. It's not the food that you eat. <laughs> it's crazy. A minority of the a minority of the weight of your stool is the food that you ate. So, so these bacteria must be. I mean, if if sixty percent of of your stool is bacteria, they're obviously are they they're multiplying in the stomach. They're multiplying in the colon at a rate that's off the charts. Yeah, you know, off the charts, and so their life cycle is boom, 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 boom. And you know, if you eat food, if you go and have uh, a meal in Morocco right now, and you have some chickpeas those chickpeas are going to influence your gut microbiota within a few hours. Within a few hours, there will be changes because of the food that you just ate. So yeah, so it's constantly adapting and changing based upon really more than anything, the food that you eat. But yes, the bacteria within your stool, it is predominantly bacteria. It does give you a window into understanding what's going on inside of you. But there's some real challenges in terms of us having a complete understanding. And here's why. Number one, there is this layer to the intestine. Um, it's a mucus layer. And it doesn't actually come out in your stool. The mucus layer is, it stays. And there are bacteria that live inside of that mucus layer. And so the point being that there are bacteria that will never end up in the stool that you would never know are in there. And the second thing is that, you know, we think in terms of organs, that's our nature. We think in terms of big parts, but this is an entire ecosystem. Imagine standing over the Amazon rainforest and you just see this massive rainforest and you think about it, this as, okay, it's the Amazon rainforest, but then you fly down into the rainforest and you stand there and you sit under a tree and you look around and you absorb the life that is in that spot where you're sitting under that tree, the monkeys, the birds, the lizards, the different plants, there's an ecosystem just like that inside of us. And so there are places within the colon where there's that kind of activity going on. There's a, there's a blend or a balance in that little microscopic spot. And that may be influencing health and disease. You see, so that, and that's kind of overwhelming in a way, but I guess the point being that it's hard to really understand everything that's going on because it's so dynamic. It's changing second by second. And it involves different parts. It's not just, the, you can't look at the whole organ. You got to look at literally a micron, literally the smallest little area. We've, we've sort of semi-digressed, but we're still talking about the, I guess, the, the effect that taking antibiotics can do on the ratio of good bacteria versus bad bacteria causing dysbiosis. What, what other factors are there or you know, other things that the listeners should be wary of that can also cause dysbiosis? Well, I, I worry about medications, period. You know, our sort of concept of how a medicine works is incredibly simplistic because the way that our minds work is incredibly simplistic. We, you know, we want something where it's, if, if you give this, this is the effect that you have. And we want it to be that simple. If you give this aspirin, it prevents a heart attack. 
But there's so much more complexity to those choices and the way it influences our body. And so all medicines, to me, may potentially have an influence on the gut. And that's not to say that there's not a place for medicine. I'm a medical doctor. I would be out of a job very quickly. There is a place for medicine. But the point being that I think the ideal place is to prevent disease in the first place with our diet. Specific medicines that can cause damage to the gut include what we describe in the U.S. as non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen or naproxen or uh, aspirin. Yeah, which in, in Australia, the, the big one's called Nurofen. Nurofen. Yeah. We know that birth control pills can change gut bacteria. We have discovered recently that the medicines that people um, have taken for 20 years thinking they were completely safe, things like omeprazole, which in the US is called Prevacid, or esomeprazole, which is called Nexium. Um, these are acid-reducing medicines, proton pump inhibitors. These proton pump inhibitors, we have discovered, cause changes in gut bacteria. And again, when you go back to evolution, it makes sense. We have stomach acid for a reason. It's not just, it's not just randomly there. That is... That is forged through millions of years of procreation and evolution so that we have a survival advantage by having stomach acid. And you knock it out and there's going to be some consequences. There have to be. And so those are examples of medications, the proton pump inhibitors, birth control, non-steroidal drugs, and antibiotics that are classically associated with damage to the gut. But then the big thing that we really need to think about is our diet. This is, this is the most powerful thing. This is the most powerful thing. I mean, if you want to change the gut in one day, well, then yes. If you give an antibiotic, that will change the gut in one day. But over the course of a lifetime, the biggest predictor of the health of your gut is going to be the food that you choose to eat. And what blows my mind is that you know the average person, we eat about three pounds of food per day. And so if you do the math and you try to keep it simple, that is a thousand pounds of food per year. The average person in the U.S. lives to be 78. It's probably pretty similar to Australia. You guys might be better than us. 78,000 pounds, 80,000 pounds of food during a lifetime. And we're going to pretend that those choices mean nothing. What happens is you eat this food. And again, we sort of touched on this earlier. The food goes down the tube and ends up being the source of nutrition for the bacteria inside of you. And the food choices that you make are going to determine the makeup of your gut bacteria. Show me someone's food choices and I will tell them what gut bacteria look like. Show me their gut bacteria and I will tell them what food they're eating. They go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. And we have a number of studies that have shown us the direction that we need to move from a dietary perspective. There's a guy uh, who's at the University of California, San Diego here in the United States. I think he's actually Australian. And he is my age. He's not much older than you. And this guy is like, he is changing the game. And he's one of my scientific heroes. His name is Rob Knight and um, K N I G H T. And he's doing something called the American Gut Project, where basically in the US, you can spend a hundred bucks, a hundred dollars, and um, they will send you a kit. And you will answer a questionnaire and send it back to them. In the kit, you give them a stool specimen so that they can analyze your microbiome. And basically what he's doing is he's compiling this information from across the country of what do people eat? 
What's their lifestyle like? Are they sleeping? Are they exercising? And he's using all this information to compare that to what he's seeing in terms of these microbiome profiles. And last year at our biggest GI meeting of the year, he stood up at at the podium and answered the question for us, what is the number one predictor of a healthy gut? And this is not like Rob Knight is not walking into this with a bias to prove a point. What Rob Knight is doing is real science and he is not having any bias. He's just putting everything into an equation and he's letting the science answer the question. And the answer to the question, the number one predictor of a healthy gut is the diversity of the plants that you eat, the diversity of the plants that you eat. And so, you know, going back to what do I eat at home? What do I eat with my kids? The diversity of the plants that we eat in our house is the number one goal that we have in mind when we sit down to have a meal at dinner time. It's not obviously every single meal that's like, you know, 60 plants, but we're just striving. We're just striving to try to incorporate different stuff. And we have studies beyond Rob Knight that demonstrate differences between vegans and vegetarians and omnivores of different variety. And basically, I think that what we see, if you look at it, is that there is this spectrum of gut health. And on one end, the unhealthy end is the American diet, 65% processed foods, 25% animal products, 10% fruits and vegetables. That's the American diet that would be pretty much as healthy as you could possibly come up with. And on the complete opposite end, the healthiest would be a vegan diet. And there are actually data that suggests that there is difference even between vegan and vegetarian, not ridiculous off the charts differences. It's a spectrum. And so people at home need to, when they're listening to this, need to choose where they want to live on that spectrum. But what's interesting is that there's this guy named Dan Butner, who is, I think, um, like a 20 year older version of you in a way. (laughs) And I mean that as like, at least the idyllic way that I imagine your life to be of traveling and stuff like this. This guy was a modern, modern day explorer. And about 15 years ago, he set out with National Geographic to ask the question, are there populations of people that live to be 100 years old at a rate that's off the charts? And ultimately, this led to a book called The Blue Zones. And so for, for people who are listening to this, have you, have you checked that out? Yeah, I've read it. It's an amazing book. It's a, re- yeah. it's a really amazing read. So for the people who haven't checked this out yet, I, I would recommend that you do. And I actually view this as a, as a part of the supportive science for what Rob Knight and these other doctors are teaching us about what makes up a healthy gut. Because the blue zones are these five places around the world where people are living to be 100 years old at a rate that is off the charts. And the question that Dan Butner asked is, well, what's up? Like, what's the deal with these people? How they live, how they eat, what's their community like? And the answer it's not just about the food. There's more to it than just the food, but here's, here are the five places. It's Costa Rica. By the way, within these countries, it's specific location. It's Costa Rica. It's Sardinia off the coast of Italy. It's Icaria 
uh, an island in Greece. And it's Okinawa, Japan. And finally, it's crazy. There's a place in the United States and it's in California. And the reason why it's here is because it's where the Seventh-day Adventists live. And so the Seventh-day Adventists are people who believe that they will come back. Their theology is that they will come back to re-inhabit their body someday. And so as part of their faith, they eat a very clean diet. And what's fascinating is that you look at these five places from around the world, Costa Rica, Sardinia, Greece, Japan, California. They're not connected to each other culturally at all, but they all eat the exact same way, which is that they are at least 90% plant-based. All of them are at least 90% plant-based. And if you take the Seventh-day Adventists that live in Loma Linda, California, and you were to make that a country, they would have the longest life expectancy in the entire world. I mean, it's important to note as well that these zones or populations, they weren't setting out to be healthy and live to 100, or certainly, certainly not originally. It was, that was just by default of you know, how they were naturally eating. Exactly. And, and, and of course, there's also these other elements like their lifestyle, like the way that they, the way that they lived. And, and I guess just to touch on those things, it's, it's very interesting because what they find in the Blue Zones book, our, our emerging science when it comes to the microbiome is supportive. These people were living outside. A lot of them were like farmers or shepherds, things like that, where they would spend time in the fields. They'd be outside all day. They got good exercise, but it wasn't exercise the way that you and I think of exercise. You know, it wasn't them like lifting weights for an hour. This was just like they're physically active, they're climbing up mountains and they're doing that all day long. It was sustained over the course of hours. And, you know, and getting good rest and being social and having a good laugh with their friends. And so, you know, you look at all these things. Well, we have, we have microbiome data. It's not as powerful as it is for nutrition. It's not as powerful as it is for antibiotics. But we have microbiome data that show that sleep influences your microbiome. Exercise changes your gut microbiome. Meditation may potentially improve the microbiome. And so all of these things that we notice that there's health benefits to, we're starting to find the connection to explain why people are healthier when they're doing these things in the changes in their gut bacteria. So it's very interesting. And I guess for all this, is a, the, the key message is to, from a diet perspective, to be having a diverse range of plants in their diet. But I, I think a lot of people listening would be wondering specifically around fiber. So where, where does fiber come into this? Naturally, if you're eating a lot of plants, you're going to be getting you know, much more fiber than the standard West, Western diet. How much fiber do you recommend to your, for your patients clinically? Or do you just tell them to go out, eat, you know, eat majority of plants and you'll get enough fiber? And what is it that the, the, the fiber is specifically doing to maintain a diverse range of bacteria in the stomach? This is my favorite topic that we're going to cover. This is this, this is the part that gets me excited the most <laughs> is talking about fiber. So, first of all, the way that we use the word fiber, at least I I will say the way that most medical doctors in the United States use the word fiber, it's as if all fiber is the same. And that's simply not the case. 
That's like saying that the protein that you'll find in the bean in a bean is the same as the protein that you will find in a cow. Clearly, they're not the same. And so fiber is referring to more, it's more a descriptive term for a part of plant structure only found in plants that does have nutritional benefits to us as humans. And there are many different types of fiber within plants. Within an individual plant, there will be many different types of fiber. And this is why the diversity of your plant consumption is critically important. But what's fascinating is that you know even after I finished medical school and went through all of my medical training, if you asked me a couple of years ago, hey, Dr. B, what's the deal with fiber? I would have told you it goes in your mouth and it comes out your bum. Like there was no concept in my mind that it was any different that, you know, but that's actually not the truth. Fiber is fascinating because what happens is it survives digestion through the entire small intestine and it arrives in the colon unchanged. And when it gets to the colon, it goes, it undergoes a transformation that the human body is not capable of doing. We rely on these gut bacteria to do this. They change the fiber into something called a short chain fatty acid. So for anyone listening at home who's heard of butyrate, butyrate, acetate, propionate, maybe you've seen supplements for butyrate. This is what we're talking about is we're talking about short chain fatty acids. And this to me is the most underrated thing in all of nutrition. Because if I were to look at the top 10 causes of disease in the United States and Australia, we would find that the vast majority of them could be improved with higher levels of short chain fatty acids. They are directly tied to health. And they have all of these amazing, powerful characteristics. First of all, they are energy for the bacteria in our gut. This is their energy. This is going to make them strong so they can do their job, just like you need energy in food so that you can be strong and do your job. They are energy for our gut bacteria. The short chain fatty acids actually communicate directly with our immune system and help it to do its job properly. They lower our cholesterol, they prevent diabetes. They actually prevent colon cancer. I could go down the line. There's so many different things that, they, that, that happens when you consume these short-chain fatty acids. But the bottom line is that there is this amazing, powerful relationship between fiber. And by the way, when I say fiber, I'm referring to specific types of fiber that are prebiotic, P-R-E, biotic. And these are the types of fiber that feed and nourish these healthy gut bacteria. And when you do that, you develop these short-chain fatty acids. And what we see are that people who have a healthy gut, they consume plant foods. By consuming plant foods, you grow bacteria that are designed to process that type of food. And when they process that food, they produce higher levels of these short-chain fatty acids that allow the entire body to work the way that it's supposed to. And so here's something that's super interesting about these um, short-chain fatty acids, is you can only get them by consuming plants. If you consume uh, animal products, those animal products are going to influence your gut to grow bacteria that they don't know how to to produce short-chain fatty acids. They're not designed to do that. 
you are growing bacteria that are designed to process fat. And this is the reason why the ideal diet is to maximize fruits and vegetables, because then you get more of these bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids. Now, we all know, you know, that when people exercise, it's good for the body. Everything works better when you exercise. Not only do your muscles get bigger, but your waist gets thinner, your clothes fit you better, you look more fit. And also, your bowels work better. People poop better when they exercise. What's the connection there? Here's the answer. When people exercise, our studies show us that there's actually changes in gut bacteria. And the change is specifically that you get higher populations of bacteria that are good at producing short-chain fatty acids. So your body is giving you the advantage of these types of bacteria. Your body is showing you that there's an advantage to these types of bacteria, but you have to feed and nourish them. You can't produce short-chain fatty acids from animal products. It's not possible. It's literally impossible. So for the for the typical Western diet, where's, where does that leave people who, I mean, last time I checked, I think 96% or something of the USA, the statistics were saying were fiber deficient or not reaching the daily recommended intake. You know, so, so what's happening in these people if they're not, if they're not giving their body that prebiotic fiber and they're not creating those, you know, short fatty acids? What, what's happening in these people is they're developing disease, which is why you see in the United States that we spend substantially more money on healthcare than any country in the entire world per capita, per person. We are more than double the number two country in terms of our healthcare spending. You see that the United States, for all of our affluence, for all of our affluence, for all of our systems, our education, our doctors, like I spent 16 years doing 80 hours a week so that I could do this. For all of that, we still only have a life expectancy of 78 years, which is less than Costa Rica, which is a third world country. And so this is, this is part of the issue. And I really believe that one of the points of emphasis is that we need to increase our fiber consumption. But when I say that, when I say fiber, I don't mean go and eat your like uh, cereal. Like I'm not talking about eating cereal. I'm talking about fresh fruits and vegetables. And if you look, the average person in the United States, the average woman, for example, consumes about 17 grams of fiber per day. That's average. That means that half the people are below that. There probably has not been a culture in human history with a number lower than that, honestly. I mean, it's, it's really actually kind of disturbing to think about how little fiber we are getting in our diet because we're not eating enough fruits and vegetables. And you go back to comparing this to human evolution, and you look at these tribal people that are in Tanzania that we were talking about earlier, all of those people are consuming 100 to 150 grams of fiber per day. They're potentially getting 10 times more fiber. Now, that doesn't mean to me that we need to each be consuming 100 grams of fiber per day. That's not what I'm saying. But in the United States, the recommendation is for a woman to get 25 grams of fiber and for a man to get 35 grams of fiber. I think those numbers are pathetically low. Honestly, I think that we should be striving for 50, 65, if not more. But you don't need to worry about the number, in my opinion. You just need to worry about eating more fruits and vegetables. 
so simple. I mean, like the the, the microbiome and biome and how the gut works is so complex, but the answer and what we're talking about here is so simple. Absolutely, we don't need we don't need complexity, and we don't need to be focusing on lectins and phytates and all that stuff. Like we don't we don't need to make this more complicated than it needs to be. It's incredibly simple. Eat your fruits and vegetables, and you know, like I I know that you are plant based, and and I completely support a plant-based diet. But if there are people that are out there that are not ready to go that far, that's okay. Just work on it. Just work on it. Just move, work, walk down the path, which is exactly what you did and exactly what I did, is you walk this path towards increasing the fruits and vegetables in your diet and you like it and you feel good. And next thing you know, you want more. hundred percent. And like, you know, despite myself being hundred percent plant-based, that's the advice that I give everyone just to step through it and get, get grow confident in it and enjoy it enjoy the new plant plant foods that you're bringing into your diet whether it's every day or every second day or you know on the weekends to start in ter- in terms of the you know we, we're talking about a introducing a diversity of plants into the diet to increase your fiber intake which then has a you know all of these enormous positive health implications are there any specific plants that offer, you know, the greatest amount of prebiotic fiber or, or ones that you would say, okay, these five would be, you know, a great addition to anyone's diet? Well, it's interesting. So if you look at what many people would widely consider to be the healthiest foods, they have a substantial amount of fiber. And so, for example, beans are among the healthiest foods on the entire planet. And what's amazing is they're not expensive. Like we need to take advantage of this before the food industry starts raising the price on us. <laughs> um, they literally, like, I can tell you that the pharmaceutical industry would pay billions of dollars to be able to say that their drug makes people live longer, even by a couple months. Billions of dollars they would pay to be able to say that. And beans have the ability to extend people's lives. There are studies clearly showing that those that consume more beans live longer, improves heart disease, improves, uh, protects against cancer. You know, you just go down the line. There are so many things, lowers cholesterol, prevents type 2 diabetes. There's so many things. The point being that beans, the reason why they make all of us, I mean, let's just be honest, like, you know, Everyone knows that you eat beans, they make you pass gas. We've, mm. When we were a kid in the US, did you guys ever yeah. sing this song? Like yeah, beans, we beans, sung it. <laughs> okay, gotcha. So I think that's global. Global, there we go. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting that that's, the, that that's the one that breaks down the border. You know, yeah, that, that's yeah. the song that actually breaks down the border of all the songs. <laughs> so anyway. I think the, but, the Simpsons or someone is uh, to thank for that. Yeah, the Simpsons were good enough to break down borders. Um, so, but the 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 thing is that the a huge part of the reason why beans are healthy is because they um, contain a complex amount of fiber, many different types. So earlier on, you you brought up fructooligosaccharides. We were talking about breast milk. We were talking about the human milk oligosaccharides. Oligosaccharides are referring to a type of fiber that's prebiotic that gets processed by these bacteria in our gut. And beans have multiple different types. An example of one is raffinose. And so now when the, the 
uh, fiber is processed, to a varying degree, it will produce gas because it is fermented. So the bacteria ferment the fiber, and the byproduct of that is gas. And so I, you know, we all recognize that beans make us pass gas or make us have more bloating, more gas. It's actually to your advantage. Um, that is the fermentation process of prebiotics. Now, I'm not saying that you should go overboard and make yourself miserable. Moderation is a good thing. But the, the point is that that fermentation process with the bean that produces gas is the exact same thing that's producing your short-chain fatty acids that you want. It's a beautiful thing. Um, on the flip side, other things like garlic, asparagus, chicory root, jicama. But, you know, the thing is that like a lot of those things I just mentioned, like most of us are not going to chew on a clove of garlic. Mm. Most of us probably eat asparagus once or twice a month. So don't feel like you are depriving yourself of what you need. The key, I think, is that all plant foods, all of them contain fiber, every single one, to a varying degree. And when you consume a plant-focused diet, when you emphasize that as the way to health, you're going to get the advantage of all of those different types of fiber into your diet, as opposed to fixating on one particular type. Like for example, inulin is what is found in, in chicory root and jicama and asparagus, inulin. And that is a specific type of prebiotic um, that has demonstrated health benefits. But there are who knows how many thousands types of health-promoting fiber that exists in our plant food that we haven't even identified or studied yet. So don't worry too much about that one specific type. Focus on getting all of it just by consuming those whole foods. Don't, don't stick to the same plate every single day. Yeah, I mean, it's good to have your backbone, like your core meals, you know, but it's good. It's also good to mix it up once in a while. Yeah. And it's quite easy even just to change your side salad or side plate of vegetables whilst keeping your core, core plate in the same, in the same meal. This brings me to my next question. I know we're getting towards the end of this podcast. The, what, where do fermented foods sort of fit into this? And, you know, we see it's a, it's a trendy, it's a trendy food group at the moment. And there's plenty of companies bringing out fermented um, cabbage or sauerkraut and things like this. How, how do, do you know, are they, are they a good thing for our bacteria and promoting better microbiome? I think they are. I think, I, I think they are, but I think that it's more complicated than just thinking about them as probiotics. I see a lot of people on the internet who are describing fermented foods as being, you know, the reason to eat them is for probiotics. Um, that benefit may be there, but in the studies that we have done, and you know, when we're talking about this probiotics, we're talking about beneficial bacteria, healthy bacteria that are alive. And uh, a fermented food and an actual probiotic capsule are not the same. They're very different. When you take a probiotic capsule, you are taking a concentrated, high number, very high number, of bacteria that have demonstrated a health benefit, but it's in a limited number of species. If you have a good probiotic, you'll have 10 or maybe more species of bacteria. Whereas in sauerkraut, 
fermented sauerkraut has potentially up to 600 different species of bacteria. Wow. But the difference is that fermented sauerkraut, the numbers, the populations are not nearly as high as what you'll find in a probiotic. And we don't know if those populations survive the acid in your stomach. So it's possible that you're not getting so much from the actual probiotic. But here's what, you, here's what we do know about fermented foods. And by the way, I love fermented foods. And it's one of my favorite things to do is to create my own. What we know is that the process of fermentation mirrors human digestion. It's, it's essentially pre-digestion. You are making it easier on your own gut. And what happens is you take that food and you transform it into something that's even better. Like to call it a superfood would be completely appropriate because you have unlocked vitamins and nutrients that you previously wouldn't have had access to. It's very common to have higher levels of B vitamins. For example, vitamin B12. If you are vegan, that is the only one that you need to worry about is vitamin B12. But it's very common during fermentation for vitamin B12 to be released. And you can find it in fermented plants. So you are unlocking nutrients. You are transforming that food. You are releasing the gas so there is less gas and bloating. In fermented sauerkraut, you get a new prebiotic. There are prebiotics that are specifically found in sauerkraut that you will not find in cabbage by themselves. And so you get all of these different benefits in this transformation process of your food. And I find it to be a fascinating thing just from a, a scientific or like thought perspective is that like, let's talk about making sauerkraut because right now is actually for you guys, the ideal time in Australia to be making sauerkraut because it's cooler. Whereas in the United States, right now we're in the summertime and it's hard to make sauerkraut when it's hot outside. When you make sauerkraut, it's as sort of earthly as you could possibly be. There's only three ingredients, cabbage, salt, water, cabbage, salt, water, that's it. And what I find to be amazing is that on that cabbage, living on that cabbage is already the bacteria that you need to transform your food and ferment it. You don't need anything more. You don't need to add anything. They live naturally on that back. Uh, they live naturally on that cabbage. You chop it up, you put it into a jar, pack it in, and you make a sea salt brine solution. The water cannot be chlorinated water. You need to at least boil it and let it re return to room temperature, or you can use distilled water, reverse osmosis water. Those are options too. But you take your water, because by the way, the chlorine will kill the bacteria. That's yeah, the issue. Yeah, yeah, sure. So you take your water, you add in your sea salt. It cannot be table salt. In the United States, we put iodine in our salt, in our table salt. Iodine kills bacteria. So sea salt, clean water, make your sea salt brine, make it taste in a way that you actually like the taste. Not that you would go and like drink this for fun, but that it doesn't bother you and that it's a good level of, of sort of salinity. And you cover your cabbage. You got you have to add something to keep the cabbage underwater. And then you just set it in a cool spot. The ideal temperature is somewhere between 55 and 70 degrees. And you just sit it. I put it in my garage usually. You just sit it there and you let it sit. And after about a week, you go and you taste it. 
And you will notice it's not tasting like salty cabbage anymore. It's starting to have that tangy, sour flavor. But it's so much better than the sauerkraut that I ate when I was a kid out of a can because that's not real sauerkraut. That's cabbage that they pour vinegar over the top of to make it taste like sauerkraut. Not the same. This is the real way of making it. And what happens is those bacteria multiply, they take over, dominate, they transform the food, they release healthy acids. And those healthy acids not only give those bacteria a survival advantage, they multiply even more. Those healthy acids are what give the flavor of fermentation. That's why fermented foods like sourdough and kombucha and sauerkraut are, have that sort of acidity or that sort of flavor to them. So basically you have that transformation of the food. Well, here's what's cool. Like if you go and if any of you at home have a probiotic, go and grab it and take a look and see if lactobacillus plantarum is on there. Because lactobacillus plantarum is one of the most commonly used bacteria in our commercial probiotics because it has got tremendous health benefits. And that is exactly the type of bacteria that you will find in your fermented sauerkraut. So there's this connection between our fermented food and our gut. It's to me, again, this is evolution speaking to us. We evolved to eat fermented foods. Um, We've been doing it for tens of thousands of years, potentially a million years. And in modern society, we let go of it because fermentation used to be used for preservation. So we developed canning and processing and preservatives. We developed all of these other approaches to preserve our food, frankly, that are unhealthy, most of them. And we let go of the healthy food, which is the fermented food. So and I, when it comes to fermented food, I advocate for people to consume fermented food on a daily basis. And I believe just like in diversity of plants, I believe in diversity of fermented food. And to me, the best fermented food is fermented plant food. So that's the way that I feel about fermentation. Perfectly answered. And uh, mate, we're, we're at the end of this episode. It's been an absolute pleasure to to have you on the show. I've learned so much from everything that we've spoken about. And what I really love is that you, you know, you said before you published over 20 papers. So you, you're evidence-based, you're treating clinically, but you're really able to explain things in a manner, which is, excuse the pun, super easy to digest. And, and I think in this episode, you've given so many practical tips that are very simple for all the all of the listeners to to implement and look through their diet and if 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 they think they can make make some changes you know towards achieving better better gut health if anyone wants to reach out to you personally and shoot you a message or follow you on social media how can they get in touch i welcome i welcome people reaching out to me i love it um you know and i just am trying to spread this message of gut health Um, because I see a lot of things on the internet that are frankly not accurate and not coming from a source that people should trust. And so I think that people deserve to have a a source that they can like really listen to. And so come to Instagram and um, join me at the Gut Health MD. Um, You can also go to my website, theguthealthmd.com, www.theguthealthmd.com and um, sign up for my newsletter. And those are the best ways to basically connect with me 
And that way you'll be able to see my posts on Instagram. You can talk to me there. And also you'll receive my newsletter so that when I do podcasts with guys like you, Simon, so that people can hear my podcasts and learn from them. And hopefully it does something good for you and for your family, because that's really what I want. Well, Dr. B, it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I really hope we can connect again and do a, a future podcast. Potentially, we uh, you may have some more further information from Rob Knight's work and gut project and what you're seeing clinically. So let's um, keep in touch. I appreciate it, man. Definitely keep in touch. And if you're in the US, we'd love to see you and hang out. 100%. Cheers, man. All right. Take care. And that's this week's episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. Connect with myself and the Plant Proof community at plantproof.com and at plant underscore proof on Instagram. Don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive our free plant-based nutritional information, including recipes, important blogs, and much more direct to your inbox. Until next time, folks, I'm your host, Simon Hill. Keep your spacesuit plant-proof. 